Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. That was Amanda Marshall with Dark Horse. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And to kick off the show, I have New York Times bestselling author and physician Sayantani Dasgupta standing by. Uh, she has brilliantly, brilliantly reimagined the beloved classic Pride and Prejudice, and it's reflecting the complex, diverse world of American high school culture with her new book, Debating Darcy. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Congratulations getting a book out in the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, this is my third pandemic release. No, come on. Really? (laughs) And, you know, things are not the same. Um, You know, we've been doing virtual events, some in-person events now for Debating Darcy, but... Certainly, you know, pandemic publishing is a is a brand new brand new experience. Yes. Um, so, at what point were you writing this this book in particular? Well, I'll tell you the truth. You know that difficult winter of 2020, back when you know we didn't really have vaccines, we were all isolated in our houses. Right. Um, you know, I needed a comfort read. And I always go back to, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan, huge Mm -hmm. Jane Austen head. I always go back to Pride and Prejudice. Um, And I had had this idea cooking in the back of my head for a long time of a contemporary, multicultural, YA Pride and Prejudice. But to tell you the truth, I hadn't had like the courage to go forward with it. But that winter, it was the book I needed to read. And so I ended up writing it. And, um, you know, I hope that other people kind of find joy and romance and, you know, comfort and delight in it uh, as much as I felt writing it. You know, what's so interesting, Sayantani, is that, and I am pronouncing your name correctly. You are, you are. Okay, perfect. Is that I've met a lot of uh, doctors like yourself who, who love to write. It's their creative outlet that keeps them positive because you have a very intense profession. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, although I'm trained as a pediatrician, my day job for the last, you know, number of years has been in something called narrative medicine. So a lot of what I do is think about this exact question that you just posed to me. Mm-hmm. Why are doctors so fond of kind of reading stories, writing stories, being involved in storytelling? And, you know, the field of narrative medicine tells us you know, in moments of crisis, in moments of trauma, in moments of need, human beings really need to tell their stories and be heard. And um, so in a sense, it's fun for me to both be able to be involved in something like narrative medicine on an academic level, and then really experience the truth of that as a writer for young people. Well, and when you talk about narrative medicine, the power of story, I find that the more people I interview they talk about they really want people to share their stories. They want a human connection because there's been such an incredible disconnect and so much loneliness and depression. Oh, absolutely. I mean, stories are good medicine. I say it all the time. And I don't mean medicine in the terms of, you know, like, you must take your medicine. It's good for you. (laughs) Meaning, you know, I mean medicine in the sense of healing. You know, we human beings, we need stories. We need to be witnessed. We need... Um, to witness other people's stories. That's kind of a fundamental nature of being human. And as much as narrative medicine teaches us, you know, how important that is, you know, when we're ill in the healthcare setting, I think the pandemic has really shown 
how critical kind of that community making function of storytelling and story witnessing is because when we lost it, you know, there's been a huge mental health crisis, right? I mean, um, you know, just difficult for young people, people of all ages, quite frankly. And I think some of that has to do with storytelling and the need for it. Well, and I'm, I'm very immersed in the research on what I call the mental health pandemic, because before Mm. we were in a crisis and now we're in a pandemic and, I mean, it seems every day there's something posted from Mental Health America or other organizations about what's what's been happening. I mean, we have the launch of 988, but then I, I read the fine print, will there be enough people to answer the calls? Oh, gosh, I hadn't, I hadn't read that. Yes. I mean, I think that's why I feel really, you know, blessed and lucky to be able to do this thing that I've dreamt of doing since I was a little girl, which is tell stories. Um, because I do think that you know, stories that depict the crises that we're going through, stories that reflect people's experiences are important, Mm -hmm. but also stories kind of about community making and joy um, can be equally revolutionary. And so for me, that's, you know, that's where Debating Darcy came out of. Mm -hmm. But in general, I feel like, you know, storytellers were so, so lucky um, because we re- we see in sharp clarity, I think we always did, but we see in sharp clarity at moments like this how important the work of storytelling is. Well, when I what I also love about your latest book is that you you interweave themes that are so important right now, as far as you know, uh, toxic masculinity and sexism, and talk about that a little, if you could, please. Oh, absolutely! And in fact, I just want to mention that today. Um, the day we're speaking, June the 18th, or June, July the 18th, yeah. excuse me, um, is actually the day that Jane Austen passed away, you know, at the young oh. age of 41. And um, she wrote stories, I think, that were ahead of her time. She used humor to kind of critique social mores at her time, things like classism, you know, inheritance laws, sexism, you know, the limits placed on women's lives. And in making that story, Pride and Prejudice Contemporary, I actually realized, you know, maybe not inheritance laws, but a lot of the themes that she explored are still so poignantly relevant. So, you know, to explore class, I don't have somebody who owns a manor like Pemberley and, you know, somebody who doesn't, but I do have two kids in private and public school. Um, And then I said, hey, you know, to be really true to Jane Austen, I want to use humor and wit to do kind of social insight into what's happening now in young people's lives. So necessarily I had to talk about kind of toxic masculinity or colorism, um, you know, or any kind of a slew of other issues Mm -hmm. that really do impact our young people today. And I try to do it in an organic way. You know, I'm, I don't like lecturing. I'm not Not a very didactic writer, Um, but I think you can fold those issues in even as you're telling a kind of fun, romantic, enemies to lovers yeah. sort of, you know, delightful story. Oh, I love it. And I love how you talk about the power of finding your community and speaking your truth, even when it's scary. Yes, Great absolutely. Message. So, you know, in the original Pride and Prejudice, there is kind of a predator, an older man who goes after young women. And I knew that in my version, you know, Jane Austen doesn't let him get away with it, but in her social context, there's really only so much that this terrible character, Mr. Wickham, um, can really face 
in terms of, you know, consequences for his behaviors. I knew in my version I wanted the young women in my, you know, 2022 novel to do the things that their counterparts in 1814 couldn't. Um, and so I have them kind of band together, and there's a moment in the book where the young women really use their voices and tell their stories to call out kind of the wrongdoing that's been done against them. And so that was a real fun moment to be able to rewrite a beloved classic and give it a twist that felt very modern and real still to the essence of the story. Incredible. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, where it is you work? Is it Columbia University? I do. I work in the graduate program in narrative medicine at Columbia University, but I also teach in a couple of undergraduate uh, places as well, the Center for Race and Ethnicity Studies and Institute for Comparative Literature and Society. And after doing that, during the day, I get to come home and write, um, you know, middle grade fantasy novels based on the Bengali folktales I grew up hearing from my grandma, Aww, um, you know, for that. kids. Uh, that's the Kiran Mala series. And now I've been writing um, some YA contemporaries as well, you know, besides debating Darcy. Um, next year from Scholastic. Amazing. I have another book coming out called Rosewood, a Midsummer Meat Cute, which is Shakespeare meets Sense and Sensibility meets, I don't know, High School Musical, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, it's a bunch of multicultural kids at a summer regency camp okay. trying out for a Bridgerton-like show. Whoa. So, yeah. <laughs> Where are you getting all these ideas, and when are you finding the time, like when your kids are asleep? I mean, do you sleep? Well, it's so funny. I was just talking to somebody about this. People will often, because I have like two essentially full-time jobs um, yes. and, you know, I'm a parent, uh, people say, oh, do you sleep? You know what the secret of my success is or the secret of my being able to get through the day, what? I won't say success, um, is I actually sleep a lot. I actually oh. think that the more healthy sleep I get, the more productive I can be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, the writing the teaching doesn't feel like work because I love my students. Yes. And the writing fills me up so much. It oh, yes. Kind of, I mean, it's cliche but it, it, to say it, but it's not because it's the truth, too. It, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like a privilege and a joy. Well, I'm a writer as well. So for me, it feels like this mental vacation. It's that flow state in positive psychology that I know you know. It's yeah. that um, submersing yourself in something that's so fulfilling. Like, I cannot sit down and just watch TV. I never do. Or, or even if I am, I will find that that's actually a moment when I'm thinking about my story. Oh, so you're, right? so you're really present, right? You're, you're supposed to be watching the show and you're like, ooh, I can add in this character. <laughs> <laughs> it's a moment where like, you stop staring at the problem and your oh, mind drifts a little and then oh, you yeah. come up with a solution to your yes. plot crisis yes. or character crisis or whatever it was. Well, it's no different than in real life when you meet somebody and you think, mm, they're a little quirky or they're related to me and I think I'll write them into my work. Right? Exactly. Although, you know, I try to oh, combine characters enough. I know. You don't have to fess up. Don't worry. Directly <laughs> <to themselves. laughs> don't worry. None of your family is going to be busting you, analyzing your character, saying, is that me? <laughs> <laughs> Although my kids do demand, um, you know, to be represented in my oh, book. they do? Uh, they do. They do. That's great. Now <laughs> they do. Later on, they're like, Mom, what were you thinking? <laughs> no, no. They're teenagers, and they're actually hilarious because um, – you know, I am not a teenager. I, mm -hmm. I know that might be a shock. But um, so in writing the, these YA books, they've been fantastic. They're like my focus group. Oh, that's good. Um, 
Yeah, they're like, Mom, this text doesn't sound right. Nobody texts like that. Oh, you know, perfect. they got me on track with that. They, they were actually like more kissing mom in Debating Darcy. They were like, it's a YA rom-com. Oh. We need more kissing. So they had to shame me into actually what ended up being my absolute favorite chapter to write. Hysterical. But moving from kind of the 8 to 12 set to the teenage set as a writer, I had to, you know, get put to rights. And my, te- you know, teenagers will always do that. That's, you know, that's just what you need. You need the target audience to review what you're doing and tell you what you should be doing. Yeah, right. And if they're your own children, not be embarrassed to, uh, you know, yes. tell you some harsh truths. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so great. And I love how they admire what you do and they want to be part of it. Oh, it's, it's absolutely, you know, a family activity. My first book, The Serpent's Secret, I actually wrote for them at the bedside, like kind of as a bedtime story, not thinking I would get it published. But it was because, you know, I grew up in this country, an immigrant daughter, never seeing myself or somebody like me mm-hmm. positively represented. And when years later, my own kids, who were big readers, fantasy readers, had the same experience, I got so frustrated. I said, well, the least I can do is write a story for you, for the two of you, from my own you know, grandma's folk tales, and I, I mixed in some string theory because my son was a big space, you know, fan. Nice. Um, you know, I love this idea of immigrant families being able to hop, you know, across galaxies, kind mm-hmm. of code switch and live multiple realities. So yes. I, I took folk tales, I took string theory, and I wrote the story for them at the bedside. And what started as a family activity then got published and then opened, you know, just I, I can't, I still can't believe it. Open the door now to, what is it, my fifth, sixth? Oh, come on. Look for kids that's out. You know, it's, it's really just an unbelievable gift. I love that. Because you, you need some, like I said earlier, a, a, some kind of creative outlet. I think most people do to um, deflect the stress of maybe perhaps another job or just balance it out. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, because my day job is, serious and I, you know, talk about serious issues and, you know, illness, disability, representation, social justice, really important issues that I I love being involved in. It also then balances me out to be able to say, hey, you know what? Writing for young people is also an act of revolution. It's also saying, what are the possibilities that are out there and how can we joyously create kind of new futures where all of us are celebrated and all of us are kind of held in high esteem. And so it becomes, you know, it becomes a really wonderful balancing act to both critique what's not going right in our society, kind of yes. in my day job and think critically, you know, about things like that. Yes. Um, and then in my writing to be able to say, well, let's just fantasize what we want mm-hmm. our futures to look like. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of been the, the way that, um, my writing fulfills that part of me. But that's such an important question right now because so many young people are struggling in the pandemic to imagine what their future looks like because they have been, like I said earlier, depressed, isolated, uh, feeling hopeless. So when you provide this opportunity to create in something that's so much fun, you're really lifting them up. I mean, can you imagine if you took the classmates of your kids in a little focus group? They would probably be so excited. Oh, I mean, it's it's really an honor and a delight. And, you know, I often say that, you know, stories are also about exploring our radical imaginations, like saying, hey, what are the radical possibilities 
that we would like to envision in our tomorrows and how are we going to get there? You know, how are we going to get there? How are we going to make those tomorrows reality? And I think not just my stories, children's stories, I think throughout the ages have equipped young people to do that work, to do that really important kind of future imagining, um, right? Because the sure. young people's books are always so kind of about overthrowing evil and banding together and mm-hmm. using your voice even when it's scary um, and, you know, creating, creating change and being the change we want to see. Definitely. And the themes in your book are so prevalent right now in 2022, so I think that's also what makes it so powerful. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, um, you know, again, I wanted to, you know, celebrate the power of finding community and speaking your truth. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to celebrate love, right, and laughter and courage and joy. And here, I'll just read you kind of the last Oh, good. I was going to ask you if you could read something. Yeah, of of the author's note, which says uh, this. So, dear reader, whether you have, like me, read and watched versions of Pride and Prejudice a zillion times or never really heard of it until now, I hope you find power, laughter, courage, and joy in these pages. Because words matter. Art matters. Debating the issues that affect our lives matters. Your voice matters. You matter. And love, in all its beautiful romantic and non-romantic derivations, matters most of all. Mm, beautiful. By the way, when did you know you wanted to be a pediatrician? Oh, that's interesting. I um, thought I would actually, you know, deliver babies, go into OBGYN. Um, And then I realized I was hanging out more with the baby, you know, than delivered. Um, And I realized, you know, there's something incredibly fulfilling and inspiring about either caring for the bodies Mm -hmm. or the minds, you know, the bodies as a pediatrician or the, you know, minds and imaginations as a writer and a teacher of young people. I I really think that young people can be our best teachers, right? And our best guides. Yes. And I feel incredibly inspired whether working as a doctor or as a, you know, as an academic, as a teacher or as a writer, I feel incredibly inspired to be able to work with and for and you know both teach and learn from uh, young people amazing I actually have the same model in the work I do I believe in intergenerational projects and when you oh lovely thank you and and you know I'll tell you where it came about I got a fellowship with Columbia University and the age boom Academy with the Robert M Butler Foundation oh sure and it was last year and they selected, I think, 32 of us. And we looked at the research on um, depression, anxiety, and the benefits when you connect different generations. I call it like the grandparent effect, where you have 18-year-olds and they're, they're doing meaningful work or just connecting with uh, retirees, let's say, who are really human capital. And, and it's just an amazing connection because you're lifting up two generations. And you're not... Um, you're remembering kind of the the potentially untapped potential of yes, our elders, exactly. right? Which is, um, you know, so absolutely. You know, that's our generational wealth, right? It sure is, is yeah. right? Is the stories and the wisdom that they have to pass on, um, like like those nursery schools that are sometimes you know set in retirement communities. Exactly. Um, you know, I love that the four year olds kind of playing with mm-hmm. playing with the ninety four year olds. Yes. 
Well, you sound like you have such a fulfilling life, this great balance. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. It doesn't always feel like that, although it's true. But I, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm dropping all my bags and I've forgotten yeah. to pick up the groceries. And Of course, that's the reality. Just like everyone yes. else. Yes. But it's very inspiring for those listening that think, you know what, I always love writing or I would like to create something or, you know, I think that's what it's all about. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, go for it because... If whether you're writing for yourself or your family or a wider audience like I get to, mm-hmm. you know, there is no limit on how we call ourselves writers and storytellers. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you love stories, you're a storyteller. And I think that no one but you can tell your story. You know, Toni Morrison has that great quote. She says, you know, if there's a story, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, mm-hmm. then you must write it. Yes. And you know, I really believe that. I So go out there and tell your stories, people. What you waiting for? Definitely. <laughs> so where can people find out more about you? So they can find out more about all my books at com or on Twitter, Cyantani16. Um, they can certainly also go to scholastic.com mm-hmm. uh, because all of my middle grade and uh, YA books are actually from Scholastic, except I have one book from Penguin Philomel, which is a biography of Virginia Apgar I did for Chelsea Clinton's She Persisted oh. series. But besides that, everything else is from scholastic.com, and they have all, you know, all the information on my books, including the forthcoming, uh, forthcoming Rosewood and then another middle grade fantasy that's coming out this year called Crown of Fame. Amazing. Let me spell your name for you so people can find you. It's S-A-Y-A-N-T-A-N-I-D-A-S-G-U-P-T-A dot com. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, I want to thank you so much for calling in and congratulations on all you're doing. I actually could envision this as like an animated series. Oh, well, I would be delighted. So if anyone's listening out there, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Just add more to your Um, pile of work. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking to you. You too. You too. Take care. That was Sayantani Dasgupta. And if you missed any part of this conversation, it'll be up within an hour after I wrap. If you would like to know more about Sayantani, there is a bio and information about all of her work on my show blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you'd like to find out about being a guest, you can shoot me an email to Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E, at kuci.org. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with my next guest, Fernando and Tyler, and they're going to talk about their debut feature film, Three-Headed Beast, which just made its world premiere at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.